As the world begins to emerge from the cave of the 21st century and opens its eyes onto the suffering from centuries of injustice and the bastardization of what it means to be free, the new Nomos podcast is a call. A call for a new beginning. A call for the new men and the new women that yearn to be truly free. A call for us to fulfill our destiny. A call for a new Nomos on the earth. Welcome to the New Nomos Podcast. I'm Abdallah Dutton, inviting you to join me on this journey of discovery to define what the New Nomos is and what we need to get there. I definitely started this journey with a much narrower view of what heroism is. And I think the the clearest learning so far has been the realization of the myriad ways in which heroism can manifest itself. Now, while mulling on this idea, I was reminded of the importance of the work of my father, Professor Yassin Dutton. And in particular, with reference to his book, The Origins of Islamic Law, where he explores Imam Malik's Muwatta, which was the first written formulation of Islam in practice, or the first written formulation of the Amal of Medina. And it's that which goes on to become what's known today as Islamic law. The origins of Islamic law highlights that the best exemplar of the Sunnah was the practice of the first generations of Medina, and it's in studying that example that we can find the solutions for our time. So, without much further ado, I present to you episode 10 with my father, Professor Yassin Dutton, lived Islam, Imam Malik, the Muwatta, and Medina and Amul. The dean should be divorced from books almost. I mean, there's a few books that help us to preserve memories but the actual thing has to be done through action. And as people always say, if you want to know about generosity, we'll just start being generous. And the action is its reality. So then one looks at the books of fiqh and you think, whoa, that one's a long way away from the reality of these, these statements. And um, that's the problem. How do you get from the text to the amal? You said that one's a long way away from the, the, the fiqh. What's an example of that? Zakat is a perfect example. In fact, almost, almost any of these issues, because they're not being, technically speaking, they're not being acted upon correctly. We don't have emirate. How do you collect zakat? Who are going to be your zakat collectors if they're not appointed by the emir or the authorities under the emir? It's, it opens up a whole whole load of questions and yet that's what it should be there should be the you know in the Quranic phrase those who are in charge of it those who are tasked to collect it effectively 
Now, we're a long way from that. But then even, say, law courts and things like that. I mean, are there law courts that are actually functioning, functioning according to the Sharia, even in the so-called Islamic world? I don't know. I was just at a, a law case the other day, and I thought to myself, this judge is actually trying to do something right. He's trying to be correct. He's trying to keep the case on course. And um, he comes across as, as um, not noble so much as trustworthy and doing the best he can. But that's just the English legal system. What about every other legal system? And then, and then one point it came up about the, the, uh, all these things are open to abuse. And my thought was, and I think I said it publicly, just as the legal system is open to abuse. So then if things are open to abuse, how do you prevent that abuse? Or how do you at least minimize it? And that has to be in the taqwa of the person, him or herself. It comes back to the heart. So there has to be a, a pure heart that seeks purity, moving ahead on that, that path. And then hopefully something can be achieved. And it wouldn't, be, it wouldn't have the same quality unless it was done with that quality. Sounds like an oxymoron, but you know what I mean. Your book, The Origins of Islamic Law, why did you write that book? <laughs> There's a simple answer to that. In those early days in Norwich, we were doing the prayer according to the Maliki Madhab as far as we could, and um, reciting the Quran according to Warsh. And those things were, for me, they were interesting. Why? one madhab as opposed to another, why one reading as opposed to another, what are the madhabs anyway that you can have a choice, possible choice between them, what are the readings of the Quran so that you could have a choice between them, etc. And they were just things that I was interested in. So they've remained interests throughout the years, and I hope I've deepened my understanding of both those things in particular, madhab and qira'a. But um, that, was the, that was the start point. And then, of course, once you get into these things, it's a whole different, <laughs> it's a whole different um, experience. You begin to enjoy it. You begin to get curious. You begin to struggle with this and struggle with that. And the whole thing has a life of its own. So your PhD was on the origins of Islamic law. That's what it got called at the end of the business. Malik's use of the Quran in the Muatta. That was the start point. So I was looking at one, uh, specifically that element of where the Qur'an is used in the Muatta, how it's used, and what parts of the Qur'an are used, etc. I mean, it ended up being three things. You have the element of the Qur'an, you have the element of the Muatta itself, which is mainly recordings, I mean, when I say recordings, records of hadith in a broad sense. Hadith defined very broadly, in other words, anyone, anything said by anybody from that period with any sort of authority. So you have Quran, Muatta, and then Medina and Amal. Quran, Hadith, and Medina and Amal. So you have those three elements of the deen, which are put together in a sense, you could say put together by Malik, or assumed to be put together by Malik. And if you leave out any one of them, you've left out a key part of it. So if you've left out the Amal, you've left out a key part. If you just have Quran and Hadith, 
then you're where we are nowadays mostly. Kitab and Sunnah is an understood phrase that's respected by everybody. That's not a problem. But if you then start changing that to Quran and Hadith, and if you redefine Sunnah as Hadith and Hadith only, you've changed it. That's, in a sense, that's what I've been interested in and, in a sense, also struggling with because the, the Western academics have a textual view on things. You can see sort of pro-textual bias and... It's almost as if the other aspect is not even considered. So the deen of Islam is, for them, recorded in books. And you take out those books from the library and you study them and you produce PhDs and so on and so forth. And there are more PhDs and there are more PhDs and so on and so forth. And uh, where's the actual living of it? Where's the generosity? Where's the act of helping someone in the street or any of these day-to-day -day things that are part of the deen and should be part of one's own record that then builds up to the end of one's life, as we've seen with the Shaykh, Rahimahullah, may Allah give him a high place in the garden. It's helping every single day and every single person that he comes across. Now, that's a view of the deen which you do not find normally. <laughs> I suppose there are exceptions. You do not find in normal academia. If you're lucky, you'll find a, a, an individual researcher who has an element of that. And if you're even luckier as a student, you might find that you have a, a supervisor who has an element of that. And then you have something a little bit closer to what we're talking about. But that's what I mean by us being, in a sense, far removed from whatever it was that was taking place in Medina 1400 years ago what i find interesting is the subject of amul mm -hmm. and the subject of amul in the context of the maliki madhab and drawing on what was practiced in medina after the prophet sallallahu among the first um the first communities or the first few generations because they were the living exemplar of the Sunnah of the Prophet Well, that is it. You've, you've hit the nail exactly on the head. It's highlighted when it gets associated with the idea of emirate and having some sort of political framework in which to act because then everything takes on a different quality. And then the experts, you could say the judges, for example, and people like that, they are making their judgment in the context of authority whereby the judgments can be put into practice. Nowadays, the judgments are not put into practice. They're just written about perhaps, or you do, a, you know, like in an academic thing, you, you do an article about so-and-so back in such and such a time. And it's not about what's going on in, say, Leeds or Bradford or Sheffield or Norwich, or it has that uh, dissociated from everyday life and what is obvious is that it was not dissociated from everyday life i mean the famous thing about the call to the prayer for example so the 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 people who then became the hanafis the people of uh, the iraqi sort of side of things abu yusuf in particular came to medina and questioned malik about the adhan not just the adhan there were some other issues as well and the reply that came was worse to the effect of, subhanAllah, 
we've had the call to prayer done here in the place where we are every day, <laughs> five times every day. We know what it is. It's been done in a certain way. It's been repeated in that way day after day after day. And you ask us, what is our source for what we're saying? We're not basing it on hadith. We're basing it on what people do around us, what people have done around us from the beginning, effectively. That's a different, that's a different support to your argument, not your personal argument to someone's argument. If somebody says, well, look, I'm doing it because the people from the time of the Prophet and the Tabi'in and the Tabi'in, all these people have done it this way. And that's why I'm doing it this way, which is a different argument. It's not an intellectual argument. No. <laughs> it's an existential argument. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Now that's, that. I mean, that's just one example, but that's, that is the sort of, the other famous example is about the, uh, the, the measure known as the SAR. And again, I don't want to get them wrong in the sort of public sphere, as it were, but the, the, the measures for the Zakatul uh, Fitr, for example, and was it four sars or, or whatever, whatever the exact amount is? I mean, my listeners will excuse me if I got it wrong. But then again, I think it was Abu Yusuf on that same visit, possibly. He said to Malik, well, what do you, what is the amount as far as you're concerned? What is that measure? So he said, well, he looked around at some of the, you know, the people in Medina around him and said, well, go and get your sars. So they went back to their houses and came back with their bowls. You can imagine a sort of wooden bowl or something, which was the size of the sar, which he'd got from his father, who'd got it from his father and so on and so forth. And he said, well, this is stronger than hadith. So this is the sar of the Prophet This is what we know as the sar. This is what we've used for measuring these measures from that time. We don't even ask a question about it. We know <laughs> this was what they used at the time. This was the amount that they used. So those two examples, the Adhan and these, uh, the, the measure known as the Saar, they're perfect examples of something just being done on a daily, on a regular basis and um, not needing a textual backup. It didn't need um, so-and-so from so-and-so from so-and-so that the Prophet said the Saar is so many rottles or so many this or so many that. It didn't need that. It was just a lived reality that they had inherited now of course there's there's the broad spectrum and then there's the more narrow one so for example the people in the law courts law courts i mean again i'm using a, a, a term that perhaps doesn't really apply to that time but those issues say about divorces and just marriages and they would have approached them in a in the same sort of everyday way so that in the water you have loads of examples where it says the sitch no how can i say here the i'll say situation here the situation with us meaning the situation here in medina is that x y z etc and whatever the, the judgment is is that if somebody says this it's considered a full-on divorce if somebody does that is considered a full-on uh, you know, slander for example if we're talking about words and um, so there was a, an understood arena, an understood, I'm not, arena is not the right word, an understood almost like basket of judgments that they were familiar with, but also, of course, the possibility of new ones being introduced into the system. System may be the wrong word, but 
new judgments being introduced according to the needs of the time and any differences that might have been arising. Given that there's now uh, 1,400 years since then, where does that leave us today? You were talking about Mu'amalat. Um, if you look at the Mu'atta and you look at the chapters on business transactions, Mu'amalat, you will find that there are two themes that come up and come up and come up and come up. And there's two things to be avoided. So it doesn't tell you what you must do. It just tells you what you should avoid, what you must avoid. Number one is to avoid riba, usury. And number two is to avoid gharar, uncertainty in transactions. Uncertainty meaning, for example, um, I'll swap that pile of stuff over there for this pile of stuff I've got over there, and you don't know what's in that pile of stuff. So you're you're swapping an uncertainty for an uncertainty in the hope that you might get some benefit or something. It's a bit it's a kind of a mini version of gambling, you could say. But uncertainty, not knowing what you're actually dealing with, as opposed to saying, I'm selling you this for that. And the other person saying, Yes, that's fine. I will buy this for that. And they're they're happy with the transaction. But they know what they're doing, they know what they're getting. So it's riba and uncertainty. Now, riba is clear in the Qur'an. Uncertainty is clear in the Muatta. It's mentioned many times, and there's a whole little subsection on it. Um, so it's that I find again and again, those are the two elements that really matter in business transactions. You know, lots of those hadiths about don't resell something until you've taken possession of it. Because if you try to do so, what are you selling? You're selling a promise that something might arrive at your house or your place or your shop. You're saying you're selling something which you haven't yet got, but you're expecting to get, and you're already selling it on to somebody else. Now, that's another example of uncertainty. You don't know what it is yet. For Imam Malik, there was a connection. You know, there was a direct link. And for us now, that link doesn't exist in the same way. Is, is the link textual? Well, I've been struggling with this myself for a little while because the, the Qur'an is obviously textual from one point of view. You can say, I mean, that, that's a whole big question in itself. Is it? Is it really just textual? But certainly as it's been handed down to us, we have it, you know, as they say, between the two covers. So you have a, the, the, uh, the Mus'haf and... Um, but even then, if you think about what, what is the Qur'an, I mean, that's a big, big question. And what is the, the, the motor force behind any of those ayahs? Ihdina surat al-mustaqim, guide us on the straight path. What is one actually asking for? What is it? The straight path. Do you see what I'm getting at? That all of these things are... You have to start living it to get some idea of what it is. What does it mean to uh, to feed the hungry, to look after beggars, to respond to the call of somebody who asks you for help? All of those things. If they're lived, then you have an idea of what it is. You have a, a taste of what the action is. There's something that, um, it's escaped my memory at the moment, but um, maybe I can lean over to a, a text. 
Oh, yes. This was it. This is the grandson of Abu Bakr, of Siddiq. This is the Qasim ibn Muhammad. And he said, and it's recorded in the, in the Wata in a textual form, I remember a time when people were not impressed by words, by which Malik says he was referring to action, to amal. It is people's actions that are looked at, not their words. It's people's actions that, that are looked at, not their words. So for anything that we do in terms of our record with Allah, it's the actions that matter. And the words may be a help, they may encourage ourselves and others, but the end result is the action. And so he's looking back and he's from that, you know, the grandchildren of the companions. And he's saying there was a time when they were not impressed by words. You could know all the words, you could quote this and quote that, but it's what are you actually doing? How are you actually carrying out your business transactions? How are you treating your wife and family? How are you treating your um, neighbors and uh, whatever it is that was concerning them at the, uh, the uh, uh, that particular day and the, the actions are more important than words now words had their place because words can you can you can uh, as in the quranic phrase it can be a good word a word of advice a word of encouragement a word of love a word of um all sorts of things praise where necessary and uh, so words are not out of the picture but um where it's just restricted to words, it's got the key thing missing. And where it's action, even without words, then the key thing is there. And then the intention behind the action, of course, is uh, the uh, key thing in all of these things. And how can there be an action without an intention? So those things are not recorded. You don't record, well, they're recorded, but they're recorded on a different level. They're recorded on, a, on an angelic level, not on, a, not on a textual level. You've mentioned the academia just really covering, uh, only taking textual um, positions into perspective. I can understand that from doing a master's thesis, where a, a big chunk of your final thesis is the literature review. And you're not allowed to put anything in there that you can't textually back. You can't really put much of an opinion. You've got to say, like, this one says that, and that one says this, and I kind of verge on the side of this one because they said that. But you're not really allowed to give your own perspective. or your own. You, you can't put in too many of your own opinions. And then whatever you kind of do have an opinion on you have to back it up with whatever you found from your research and then write your own conclusions at the end which is kind of minimal so you don't have that much scope of your own kind of expression and that's as far as i understand that's kind of the backbone of kind of contemporary academia well the other side the other possibility which is what i was able to take advantage of was that there are scholars of the past who've confronted these issues and looked at them for what they are. And the best example is um, uh, Qadir Yad in his book, Taratib al-Madarik, which is all about the scholars following the path of Malik. And he has a wonderful introduction where he explains the issues between the different madhabs and what they're based on and why they're different. And then he has a 
a section, and this was highlighted by Sheikh Abdul Qadir in the Root Islamic Education book that he published. Now, that was, that was based on a conference which was before the publishing of the books. So the, I think the conference, was, I, I might be wrong, but 1980, 1981, and highlighted the, the section in Qadi Yad's book about the reasons for the superiority of the Amal of Medina. And then in one chapter it says, even if it goes against Hadith. And there's a critical chapter which... I have found important to emphasize, well, at least three occasions in a, in a printed form, which sums up the, the intellectual or the, the background of that position, whereby you can effectively, I'm tempted to use a sort of flippant word of like chuck out a hadith and use something else instead, even though the hadith seems to be 100% correct, authentic, and workable, and so on and so forth. But in the Maliki Madhab, it's possible. I say Maliki Madhab, and even that is a, an expression from you know, anachronism or whatever the word might be from, from later down the line. Because at the time of Madhab, at the time of Malik, he wasn't on his own Madhab. He was just practicing the deen from what he knew in Medina. There was no Maliki Madhab at that time. So how can you say it's the Maliki Madhab that you're following? It doesn't makes sense in that sense. We just want to be on the, not saying that the Maliki Madhab, but rather the, Malik, the Madhab that Malik was on at his time, which, which is different. It's not his own Madhab. It's something that he found already there. So Qadi Ayyad highlighted the importance of the uh, Medinan Amal to the extent that it, in cases, is stronger than a strong hadith yes that is the strange but true position and Qadi Iyad himself was a 12th century judge and scholar and man of knowledge of very significant importance yeah in fact they, they say if it wasn't for Iyad Morocco wouldn't be known about there's a phrase in Arabic, you know, in other words, his status is so high across the Muslim world. And then that Morocco gets known as being the place where he lived and produced his work, etc. Or the, the West, anyway, the Muslim West. So they say if it wasn't for Iyad. How do you say that in Arabic? It was not for Iyad, Morocco would not be known about. And yes, he had the, a chapter, I've got a here, uh, the superiority of Amal over Hadith. Um, ah, what has been related from the first community and the men of knowledge regarding the obligation to go back to the practice of the people of Medina, the Amal of the people of Medina, and it's being a conclusive proof in their opinion, even if it is contrary to Hadith. It being a conclusive proof in their opinion, even if it is contrary to Hadith. And these are the ones where you have the phrases like... Um, uh, Ibn al-Qasim, one of the students, and Ibn Wahab, both big students of Malik, and they said, I saw that with Malik, Amal was stronger than Hadith. And there's lots of... So Malik said there were people among the men of knowledge of the successors, the Tabi'in, that's the generation of the companions, who would narrate certain Hadiths and hear other Hadiths from others and would say, we're not ignorant of this. In other words, they get 
they've shown, if you like, two contrary opinions on something. I mean, and they would say, these men of knowledge would say, we're not ignorant of this, but the amal that has come down to us is different. So we're going to what has been acted upon, what has been chosen as the ongoing amal, as opposed to just the text that has been recorded and or memorized or, or remembered. And it's, it comes down to, in some cases, some very specific people. And there's these two brothers in Medina who are the grandsons of Amr ibn Hazm. I mean, well, they're from his, his family. I don't know about grandsons, but great-grandsons or grandsons. Or One was a Pali. He became a judge. And the other was a, a good man of hadith. I say good man. I mean, he was obviously well-respected and knew a lot of hadith. And there's plenty of, of hadiths recorded from him by Malik in the Muatta itself, and only some from the brother. But the brother was a judge. And the other man, his name is Abdullah. So there's Muhammad, who was the judge, and there's Abdullah. And uh, one time Muhammad gave a judgment based on something. And Abdullah said, but there's a hadith against this that says something else. And then, so Muhammad replied back, yes. And he says, but what is the position of the people regarding this hadith? In other words, what is actually acted upon? And that, that was one of the ones that Pa'adi Yard mentions. So you have these two brothers. I always like the idea of two brothers because the, the one brother, he's, he's obviously a, um, a, a solid scholar. He knows his stuff. He's got lots of hadiths and Malik relies on him. It's not, a, you know, he, he, he is acceptable in that sense. And, uh, and he just sees his brother, who's the judge, carrying out his daily business as a judge. In other words, trying to achieve justice in various situations hearing both sides and trying to give a correct judgment about what is right and what is wrong, what can be done and what can't be done. And then he, the, the scholar, if you like, is a bit upset. He says, well, hang on a minute. Here you are giving a judgment and I know this hadith and I know that hadith and so on and so forth. And so his reply comes back, yes, but what's the agreed amal here in Medina? What is it that we actually do here? Now that confuses people. That, that gets the, you know, the Muslims of the modern world are very upset and they don't like the idea that there could be a thing called Amal which actually overrides a hadith, especially when this hadith has been related by scholars who've got ijazas and this and that and the other, have got to, you know, chains of authority and that's the problem that one gets nowadays. Why is it that people are getting, why is it the Muslims don't respect the Amal of Medina anymore? What happened? Do you know? I don't know, but I suspect it comes around with the rise of Madhab. And when is that? The rise of Madhab would be middle to end of the second Muslim century. In Hijri terms, you have the first and second centuries. They're the key um, sort of what you might call the formative period. Now, Imam Malik was alive well, he died in the year 179. Again, I'm talking Hijri because it's a bit easier mentally. So the, towards the end of the second century, Imam Shafi died around the year 204. Now that's just at the beginning of the third century. And I think Ahmed ibn Hanbal was the year 240 or something like that, later on in that uh, century. Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, he died, again, I might be wrong, but the year 150. So... Abu Hanifa, you could say, is the earliest in terms of his death date. Then Malik, 179. Shafi, 
204 or something like that. And Ahmed ibn Hanbal is a, a much later, sort of around 240 something. I don't know exactly. Now, that is the time where things were being solidified. So you've got that century. Now, the thing is that the Hanafis are actually very close methodologically to Malik as well, because they have their, there are issues where they say, ah, oh, but I do what my Sheikh does. And like the various ways of doing wudu and how many times to wipe the arm, etc. And that that is very close to to the position of Amun. But it's not the same as the Amun of Medina because it's not based on Medina in that direct sense, whereas Malik's position is. Shafi and Ahmed ibn Hanbal, that is a a later, I'm tempted to use the word adjustment because I don't want to. I don't want to belittle in any way or form the high character of these people as individuals because they are, you know, I look at my own actions and I think, goodness me, it's clear that they're way above me. But that's the time when things took a change, I think. It's around approximately the year, for want of a better date, around the year 200, just to make it simple. So that first... 200 years that's the key time and then after that um it becomes very much a sort of hadith based uh, framework so that later down the line the scholars also are following that framework so if you want to be a scholar in the muslim world you have to know your hadith to prove that you know your hadith ideally you have an ijaza you have some permission to pass on that knowledge from another sheikh uh, that he's he's given it to you now that in a sense has benefit to it that's what we we're saying before that you have an isnad you have a you remember somebody that you trust and have respect for telling you this and that and whatever it is so that is that is positive but somehow I mean, you find it in the in the Sheikh's book, Root Islamic Education, he, he, he goes into it that what happens is that the amal, the original amal, gets turned into text, and then the text as a concept gets given priority and gets given the top position. So people then become textualists. Now, that obviously wasn't what it was at the beginning, but... But also people like Imam Malik, for example, they're also really good as textualists. If you want a good solid hadith, he's one of the best people you can go to to get it from. And other people did go to. And Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and these people went to Imam Malik. And you can follow the, the transmitters. So yes, Imam Bukhari relies on this man from Malik. Imam Muslim relies on another man from Malik. And they've got their... Isnad's back to Malik. And that in itself is a very interesting story and, and backs up the credentials of, of the Mwata very much. As one of the, the later Andalusian scholars said, he said Malik was the, the start point and it was on him that Bukhari and Muslim and all the others built their work. So you, you have a, a very solid textual base. And as I've tried to summarize it before, if you want, if you want Amal, Malik is your man, and if you want Hadith, Malik is your man. So, so he has, in a sense, the best of both worlds.
maybe because that was where he was. He was <laughs> stood right on the the best of both worlds. Alhamdulillah. Bringing it to r- right now and this moment in time, based on what you learnt and understood from this, the journey of of writing this book, publishing the book, the feedback from the book, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, what would your uh, call to action be for people based on on that journey, specifically from that journey, so to speak? Well, I'm thinking that what has come out of it for me at the end is a better understanding of the Muslim community as a whole, worldwide. That, I think, is a very important thing. So that one has respect, as I said, for all of these people who who will quote you a hadith and for their methodology, for want of a better word, and that one is trying to retain a memory of a time when it wasn't like that. One is trying to keep alive a memory of when the deen was a little bit different. Maybe you should even say very different. But I don't want to exaggerate it because I don't want to undermine the deen of the average Muslim because the deen of the average Muslim, many of the Muslims, they're fine. There's no problem with the average Muslim. You go to Medina or Mecca and they're all your brothers and they mean it and they'll smile at you as a brother. And so we do not deny any of that whatsoever. But on this sort of intellectual scholastic level, it is important to make distinctions and to recognize that X is not the same as Y. And that the trajectory of that is not the same as the trajectory of, of this. So in say, for example, the UK, I find it it's important to, in a sense, give space to other people and their views, other Muslims and their traditions and their expectations. And if you find a Hanafi doing something in a particularly Hanafi way, well, then fair enough. And if you find a Shafi doing something in a Shafi way, then fair enough. And one accepts, one accepts the imams, one accepts the the scholars, but. We want to try and create our own link to the past. And it has to be that we do that by acting as best we can in the future. And as you will know, one of the ways of doing this is zakat. And that's, of course, a whole other area of of, uh, a whole other discussion. And it highlights all these issues that we're talking about. Leadership, details how much do you actually pay and when and uh, all that sort of thing. Now, it hasn't been completely lost. It, it, it feels like it's almost lost, but I believe it can be regained, reconstituted if necessary, and that we can have people who do understand the fiqh of zakat and by extension, of course, to understand the fiqh of riba is really important and to recognize it for what it is that's a big big problem across the muslim world you can talk about you know for example the monetary systems that exist nowadays 
and refer to their, their ribawi nature and people don't really want to know. And if we get to something like Islamic banks, then Sheikh Omar is your man. But that is the way, that is the way to understanding the modern world because that's where the power lies or seems to lie. The power is in the hands of Allah. But the sort of dunya level of human beings pushing their weight around seems to be these big corporations and all of these people. And understanding that, I think, so in a sense, I would say understanding the time we are in and understanding the Muslims for what they are in a positive way and putting those two things together so that we are Muslims in our present place and time and that we have respect for other Muslims, but we have understanding of the world around us, including democracy and all of these things. So understanding zakat in our time unravels in uh, in depth everything that you've been talking about regards to the Amal of Medina. Yes. And what we are lacking today. And in order to uh, to remedy that requires Amal and requires action. Is that right? Yes. I think that's summarized beautifully. So that's what we have to try and do. It's with great pride that I call my father one of my heroes. He's a man who took one instruction from his sheikh and persevered in it until his groundbreaking thesis was published and then continued on with subsequent publications. His first book, The Origins of Islamic Law, is available on Amazon, and I've added the link in the episode description. Thank you.